I think it's about time that you hear directly from the investigator who put together the case against Andrea Witcher on behalf of Heather McCrossin. Uh, well, Jenny, first of all, thank you for uh, taking the time to do all of this research and put this story together about um, Heather McCrossin and some of the other victims that we have um, up here in North Central Florida. Um, I thought Heather's case was a very sad case, and I'm really glad that um, you've taken the time to do the research. And uh, I've loved a lot of your previous work that you've done, so it's actually a privilege uh, to be interviewed by you. Oh, thank you. Okay. You're very welcome. Uh, My name is Kevin Allen, and I investigate cold cases, primarily homicides, for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office in Gainesville, Florida. I'm also a retired police detective from the city of Fort Lauderdale Police Department. I worked down there for a little over 24 years, from 1980 uh, through my 47th birthday in 2004. I moved up to uh, Gainesville here in 2005, and then the sheriff ran a ad for a cold case detective in a local newspaper here, uh, I guess uh, looking for some retired talent up here, so uh, mm. I answered the call, and I've been doing uh, that here since, uh, well, 2013. Fantastic, and my listeners will um, remember you or your work from season seven, my season seven case that involved Anna Elizabeth Young and the House of Prayer for All People, um, which, by the way, uh, just so that they will know, you have recently secured a conviction, so congratulations on that. Thank you. That was a very challenging investigation. Uh, there were uh, quite uh, quite a few ups and downs in that case, but I, I think we finally got some uh, justice for our, our victims in that case. Yes, and I imagine my, I, that's one of the ones that my listeners tell me it's the, what was the hardest one to listen to because of, you know, young victims, I guess, is, is one of the major problems and with that. But um, I was really glad to, to see that um, come through the news feed. And there's another case that you worked on that I think my listeners might recognize. Tiffany Sessions. She went missing in 1989. Just give me a quick, oh, yes. yeah, a quick synopsis of that case, just quickly, and and where your involvement and in, you know where it stands now. Well, uh, I first uh, when I first started here uh, as a cold case detective, uh, Tiffany Sessions was uh, my first case. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I was primarily hired to look into her abduction. Um, in that case, it very close to home for me because I uh, am the father of a daughter, and she was 17 at the time when I started uh, reading Tiffany's case here for the sheriff's office. And just that summer, we had taken her to multiple colleges all over the country for her to see um, and that she was going to apply to. So when I started reading Tiffany's case, which is the uh, abduction uh, and murder of a 20-year-old college student at the University of Florida, that case hit very close to home for me. And so I kind of hit the ground running on that one. We got a lucky break um, early on in uh, my involvement in that uh, we had got a DNA hit on a serial killer whose specialty was 20-year-old college students. And I went down to interview uh, that suspect in Miami, and he unfortunately was on life support. Uh, and then he died before he was ever interviewed. But uh, we feel fairly comfortable that he was responsible for Tiffany's disappearance. And as you know, that's a very complicated, long story. But uh, mm-hmm. we haven't given up hope of trying to find her remains someday. And uh, we actually uh, 
fairly recently um, in northeastern Gainesville um, for Tiffany's remains, and we were unsuccessful. But uh, as long as I am here and I'm in contact with both parents in that case, uh, we're not going to give up until we bring her remains home. This is one of the reasons that I was so eager to speak with Kevin Allen. I've heard from numerous family members of victims, and some victims themselves, in the cases that he has covered, how much they appreciate him and his work. Nobody wants to be in a position where they have to work closely with a homicide investigator, because that means an unspeakable tragedy has befallen their family or friend or someone they know. But every single person who has a loved one that has been murdered or gone missing deserves a Kevin Allen in their lives. I was curious about his process and how he worked a cold case once it landed on his desk. When I start a, a new cold case, um, I actually read it twice. Um, I kind of do an overview the first time just to be familiarize myself with um, the victims, the witnesses, and the evidence. And uh, Usually, as soon as I'm finished, I, I kind of walk away for about a day, then I come back, and then, uh, then I do a very serious read. I guess you'd call it a deep read. And then I start creating lists, you know, I create uh, lists of witnesses and suspects and questions about the evidence, um, questions that I would like to um, ask witnesses if they're going to be re-interviewed, and then hopefully uh, come up with some sort of game plan that is um, somehow different from what a previous investigator has tried before, or um, maybe trying the exact same tactic, but because the relationships may have changed as far as um, some of the witnesses involved, um, I might go back and try those same witnesses again, or with the advances in technology, we might try doing uh, more with the physical evidence today. What I really liked is the very first few things you said where you do like a, a first read and a deeper read. That's exactly what I do when I'm researching a case. I think for some reason when you just do a brief, let me just read it just for the story, you know, get just to get, you know, the basic thing, the premise in my head. And then you just sort of let it simmer for a while and start one, you know, without even looking at everything, let it simmer for a little bit and then go for that deep read. And then I'm all about the highlighters and everything. So <laughs> um, Exactly. We have a lot in common. Yeah. I think we kind of approach cases the same way. Uh, first time's an overview, and the second time is the real deal. So when you, after you, you know, you got into Heather McCrossin's case, when you did that first read, um, what were your initial impressions as far as the strengths, the weaknesses of the case, or anything that concerned you right off the top? Well, the strengths of the case uh, were simply this. Uh, we had a great suspect. There was a uh, individual that had committed... Uh, ongoing, escalating domestic violence uh, against our victim. Um, and uh, according to the mother of the victim, um, this same suspect was the last person to be seen or heard from alive with the victim. Uh, so those were the strengths of our cases. Uh, but the weaknesses of the cases are we had no eyewitnesses to the homicide. Um, and the biggest challenge of all is we didn't have a body so it was going to be a no body homicide um, unless we got a tip as to where her uh, remains were yeah and that that's no small feat i mean the the fact that you got a, there was a conviction on that case is is really amazing i think um and we'll talk a little bit about the prosecution of that in a minute but with i mean not you didn't just not have a body you didn't have a crime scene you hadn't didn't have a murder weapon you had Nothing but witness statements, and, and it was remarkable that you were able to put a case together, and a strong case, I feel, you know, with what you had to work with. 
it's it's pretty there amazing. There were some challenges with that investigation. Yeah, from day one. absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, speaking about challenges specific to domestic violence, it was awful to listen to. And you know, what is your personal experience with domestic violence? Um, before you became a detective, did you you know go on any domestic violence calls, or you know, what is your personal experience with uh, domestic violence cases? Well, I've been involved in uh, domestic violence cases. Uh, probably at both ends of the spectrum. Uh, when I was a patrol officer, uh, I would be one of those 911 calls that would go out where a, a victim um, was alleging that um, she had been beaten up or battered um, by a domestic partner. Um, so those were that was a different experience um, than approaching them as a detective. Um, generally, back when I was in uniform, and that was a long time ago. You know, we it was more of a matter of trying to keep the peace and trying to separate the couple, you know, for a night or so, and hopefully, you know, they would work things out amongst themselves. Um, the exceptions, of course, would be if there were uh, apparent physical injuries and that if we left the scene without um, taking someone into custody or finding a, and or finding a safe place for the victim, then uh, we may be dealing with a much more serious um, allegation or crime in the morning. So, but that was kind of the philosophy back then. Was you know it's a family matter, and we want to maintain the peace for the most part. Um, I think that was kind of the patrol perspective. That's completely changed today. I mean, it's really taken all of the subjectivity out of um, patrols' response. Now, you know, you are required to take action if you um, think there's any significance to the complaint you know you have to take action that night and you can walk the victim through getting court orders and find a safe place for the victim and i would think nine times out of ten the suspect goes to jail that night that's basically how it's handled today um as a detective um i also got involved in that because when i first became a detective i investigated um physical and sexual abuse of children and um i worked on our homicide squad also for several years in South Florida, and a lot of our um, homicides and aggravated batteries would start as a simple battery or domestic uh, disturbance or a domestic battery, so I got to handle it from that perspective also. So uh, I've had my um, uh, good share, fair share of domestic violence investigations. Yeah, and you know, looking into all the different um, people tangentially related to these cases as far as Jessica Green's case and um, Yvonne Belcher's case, this case, um, people associated with them and around them. I was just flabbergasted with the amount of domestic violence charges against different suspects in these cases. And it went goes hand in hand with the drug um, charges. I, I'm, I'm learning a totally different perspective on, um, you know, what you guys do and and what you're faced with just looking at the prior, uh, you know, prior charges of people that are involved in this case from, de- you know, the couple decades, just going to the court documents. And it, it's just amazing to me how so many of these people had domestic violence issues in their past. It just was, it's shocking to me. Um, so when you're talking about this case specifically, did you have problems with witnesses um, and being afraid of Andrello as far as wanting to talk well, to you? Yeah, Andrello was a big guy mm-hmm. and he was a convicted felon and he was a drug dealer and he always carried a gun and he definitely had a temper um, and he definitely had a propensity for violence. 
But I would say, for the most part, um, most of the witnesses in this case were anxious to come forward. Um, a lot of the witnesses were uh, family members of our victim or really close friends of the victim. So although, of course, you know, they um, were apprehensive about possibly being a, a threat, being threatened by Mr. Witcher or his friends or family, uh, we didn't really receive any uh, hesitation on any of our witnesses, except for one, and that was um, Andrello's uh, ex-wife, mm-hmm. who, at least in my mind, was one of the most traumatized uh, domestic violence victims that I had ever interacted with. Yeah, and I want to talk uh, to you about her. I am going to be using a pseudonym for her name and the podcast to protect her privacy. Um, but I think her story tells us you, pretty much anything you need to know about Andrelo comes from her story and hearing, you know, what she endured. What, talk to me about the level of abuse that she endured and your impressions of her when you were able to speak to her face to face. Well, Jenny, the uh, first time I spoke to Andrelo's ex-wife. I was doing my due diligence. I was I'd run all of the uh, background that I could, and I contacted and interviewed um, anyone uh, that I thought could be a potential witness. And these are, um, and Mr. Witcher was just kind of nicknamed him the poster boy for domestic violence because every girlfriend he ever had, he beat up or put in the hospital or threatened to. And when I found out that he was married, I thought, oh, you know, here might you know be an exception to the rule. So. Uh, this witness was very difficult to run down. Um, she definitely did not want to be found. But when I did find her, uh, I called her on the phone initially because I, I didn't know what, um, I actually couldn't even get her physical address. She was very adept at, at, at hiding, and she was primarily hiding from Andrello. Uh, and when I introduced myself and told her uh, who I was investigating, um, she just opened up like a, tidal wave it's mm-hmm. just uh yeah i never expected that level of um intensity uh, from a phone call and i guess she'd been waiting to tell her story for a long time but when i told her i was trying to get some background information on mr witcher and that he had a um he was accused of committing domestic violence against um, a woman and then murdering her and then disposing of her body uh that's when she just went off and she said well her first quote was, he beat her every day. And then she started to go into great detail as to how she was abused every day. And every story just became more intense than the past one. And I, I actually, at some point, I tried to stop her and because I uh, wanted to record the conversation and I also wanted to meet with her in person and to bring a victim advocate with me because what she was going through uh, verbally with me was just um, intense is just an understatement yeah. and uh, I literally had to sit down I was like standing up when I started talking to her but it made my knees weak just mm. to hear what she went through with this guy and that and when she was finished and it, 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 it took a while um, I asked her if I could come meet with her in person and introduce her to someone that would offer her some uh, resources, some services as a victim of domestic violence. And, and we did. I think we kind of met the next day at her um, house in Jacksonville. And, and then, that, then we uh, recorded the conversation. But um, she uh, was, the, like I mentioned, the most severely abused domestic violence victim I had ever interacted with. 
Yeah, it, that that um, interview was really. It took me a couple of days to get through, and uh, just thinking about it, I get choked up. It was really bad. It was just. I, I there's no other way, and I, I hope I can. Um, when I'm describing it in the podcast, do it justice because boy, was it was um, it was something else. You know, you could hear in her voice. You didn't need to see her. You could hear in her voice the fear, the you know, the just years of this trauma, and I don't, you know, that she will live with for the rest of her life. It was a lot. There is a lot involved in getting witnesses to speak with you, compiling their stories, and finding the commonalities that can be used to build a case. And then there are the logistical issues to deal with. Heather's case alone included incidents of abuse in multiple jurisdictions. Then there were the other related cases. That created a situation where it was imperative for different agencies to work together. Part of my due diligence um, was not only to investigate um, the homicide that occurred in my jurisdiction um, of Heather McCrossan, but in researching Mr. Witcher, we found out that he was linked to other victims that he had relationships with that he threatened to hurt or kill whose bodies had never been recovered. Uh, One was a a Camry Mitchell from Suwannee County in 2012, and another was uh, Yvonne Belcher from Clay County in 2003. So there's some pros and cons to have a multi-jurisdictional case uh, um, for your listeners, you know, a police officer only has uh, authority to take action in the jurisdiction that um, they're sworn in is the bottom line. Uh, and so what I did is I reached out to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement because they have jurisdiction um, all for, through all of the counties in the state of Florida. And they are, um, you pretty much start there as an investigator. They, they call them special agents. So um, I always teamed up with um, uh, a Florida Department of Law Enforcement special agent uh, when I did almost every interview in this case. And I, I started with one agent, and then uh, he eventually uh, quit or retired. Then I um, got assigned to another agent who was just a a pleasure to work with um, Jennifer Wolf, um, and she's out of the Live Oak office for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So how we kind of handled it is I would handle Heather's case, and she handled Camry's case, and with Yvonne Belcher, we um, dealt with a, a detective specific to the Clay County Sheriff's Office. So we kind of created our own little mini task force so that um, we could work together uh, for the, the common good or for a common goal. After an investigator has put all the information together and built a case, then they have to essentially show their work to convince a prosecutor that they have enough to win in court. A lot of times this is where a case goes to die. Sometimes law enforcement runs down every lead, interviews every witness, and tests every bit of evidence, and still, a prosecutor will look at all of that and say, nope, it's not enough. That would be my nightmare fuel if I was an investigator, getting deeply invested in an outcome, only to realize that I wouldn't even get a shot at putting it in front of a jury. And that almost happened here. A case filing appointment is basically when a detective's investigation is just about finished, uh, when the detective feels that there is probable cause for the arrest 
uh, of an individual. Um, usually, uh, this is done uh, not on the phone. It's usually done in person. Uh, sometimes you provide the uh, prosecutor or, uh, or the assistant state attorney with uh, an arrest affidavit, or a, they call it different things in different jurisdictions, or a probable cause affidavit. And you generally uh, make the prosecutor a copy of the entire file, depending on the severity of the charges. You know, sometimes you can go take care of an appointment like that in like in an hour or in a day, and sometimes uh, the volume of materials are, are so large that the prosecutor might want to take it under advisement for a while. So in this case, uh, when I first, um, when I thought I was ready um, to file charges against Mr. Witcher for what he had done to Heather McCrossan, I made an appointment um, at the uh, Alachua County State Attorney's Office with the um, supervisor of the crimes against uh, women and children. And I brought the case over there and uh, discussed the facts and and what I knew and what I thought and what I thought we could prove. And uh, in fairly short order, um, I was told that there would not be a prosecution of uh, Mr. Witcher because uh, we had never discovered the victim's body, Heather McCrossan's body. And without the body, um, the corpus delecti, uh, we didn't have the body of the crime, therefore the case wouldn't be prosecuted. Um, In addition to that, that the only... um, testimony or witness testimony we had was hearsay and uh, the prosecutor that I met with the first time on this case didn't feel uh, confident that he would be able to get um, a lot of that material admitted at trial and therefore um, basically um, was not too interested in going to the next level which would be bringing the case to a grand jury or bringing uh, an arrest affidavit to a judge uh, for a judge to sign so I kind of walked out of that office uh, pretty discouraged, um, thinking that after I'd put quite a bit of time into this mm. investigation and had interviewed a lot of people and got my hopes up and the family members' hopes up and our witnesses' hopes up, that there was a possibility that this case uh, would never be prosecuted. Um, but one thing I'd learned a long time ago um, as a detective, it, it's really not over until it's over. So, uh, And I've also learned, you know, never to burn my bridges. So, you know, I left the appointment um, with this state attorney, and I just walked away. I had, you know, lots of other, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, lots of other cold cases to look at. So I find when uh, I get a little discouraged or come to a dead end on one investigation, I'll just walk away from it for a little while or, you know, talk to some colleagues or, uh, you know, just become more involved in another case. And uh, as luck would have it, um, I always attend a Missing Children's Day in uh, Tallahassee. Uh, which is held at the Capitol every year, and it's kind of a special event for um, long-term missing person cases, usually the governor or the governor's wife and uh, a lot of the um, VIPs in law enforcement throughout the state of Florida meet at the Capitol, and there's a big breakfast uh, on the top floor of the Capitol building, and then um, they have like an hour-long ceremony where they honor uh, the survivors, the family members of long-term missing persons, parents is generally it's called missing missing children's day um and it's very well attended and they have you know bloodhounds there that go out and try to find missing children and uh and they give a lot of awards at and i i go there every year because uh, one of my cases is the long-term missing person case uh, we talked about briefly earlier earlier tiffany sessions and i always go just to support um tiffany's mother um uh, 
Hillary Sessions, who is a, a real mover and shaker um, in the, in this field. And I, I sit next to her, and, and we're, we're really good friends. Or we're, we call each other bro and sis. But, um, and the year that, um, fairly, fairly shortly after I attempted to file this case at our local state attorney's office, I'm sitting next to Hillary during the um, ceremony, and I, I kind of knew everyone on the stage because they're all like, you know, the, the governor or the governor's wife or, you know, the uh, people in the cabinet um, or very high-ranking police officials, but there was a man on the stage I didn't recognize, and Hillary just knows everybody, and she actually sits on the advisory board for the FDLE for Missing Children's Day, and I asked her, who was that guy? And she said, oh, that um, that man's name is Emery Ganey. And I said, well, who is Mr. Ganey? And uh, she said, well, let me just introduce you, and you, you know, you can ask him yourself. So when the service was over, uh, we had gone up, and uh, Hillary knew Mr. Ganey really well, so she introduced me, and it turned out that uh, Emery Ganey was the law enforcement liaison for the attorney general's office, you know, the chief prosecutor for the entire state of Florida. Back then, it was Pam Bondi. Um, but that's who Mr. Ganey worked for, and he acted as a liaison for investigators or investigating agencies who would want to present um, criminal cases to the attorney general's office or the statewide prosecutor's office. So Mr. Ganey handed me a business card, and then he said, well, you know, if you ever need any of my services, or in other words, if, if you have any cases that cross jurisdictional boundaries in more than one circuit, let me know, and perhaps I can assist you. Well, mm. the timing just could mm. not have been better, because I've basically been turned down, you know, professionally and politely for uh, going to the next level on Heather McCrossin's case, and yet here was the law enforcement liaison to the statewide prosecutor's office telling me if I had a multi-jurisdictional case, then maybe I could bring it to him. So um, I didn't really waste any time. I kind of told him what I had right then and there, and he said, well, you know, why don't you, um, you know, send me a little synopsis, and, and we're kind of kicking that around a little bit. And he goes, but, you know, Kevin, i got to tell you, you know, today's kind of your lucky day because uh, we just hired a retired prosecutor out of Tampa, and especially is no body homicides, that he has prosecuted more homicides where the body has not been recovered or discovered than any other prosecutor in the state and perhaps the country. And we just got him on board, and he doesn't have any cases yet, so I think he'd be excited to hear from you. So uh, Mr. Ganey put me in touch with this prosecutor. His name was Cass Castillo, and he was out of Tampa, Florida. So I basically had a PowerPoint presentation about Heather's case and a, a very lengthy police report, and I shipped that over to him. And you know, I expected it. You know, I'd wait, you know, a, a week or two for him to process it all. And you know, he'd probably reach out to me, or you know, I'd give him a week or two because he had just started his new job. Um, but I, I shipped it overnight, and he had got it, I guess, on a Wednesday. And he called me. I was, the next day, and he said, am I coming to Gainesville or are you coming to Tampa? Because I, I like what I read and I like what I saw, and Mr. Witcher sounds like a very worthwhile target, and it is my intention to um, bring the full force of the statewide prosecutor's office against Mr. Witcher, um, and that I am willing to investigate it further, and if we have adequate proof, to file criminal charges against Mr. Witcher for what he has done uh, specifically to Heather McCrossin. And if he has jurisdiction, if we could prove it, 
possibly prosecute other cases. Wow. Um, I was going to ask you what were your impressions of Cass Castillo, but I, you pretty much just <laughs> explained what your impressions were. He He's a force to be reckoned with, it sounds like. Perfect for yeah, these I, cases. I, from my first contact with him, I just knew he was the real deal. I mean, he was just a career prosecutor uh, that sought the truth, um, that he, he had... There's a lot of casisms. I, I would have to say that I've learned over the years, but uh, you know, many prosecutors we deal with, like if there's a problem with the case, they just want to walk away, and they you know don't want to take it any further. And he he never had that philosophy. Like if there was uh, a problem, he'd say, okay, well, you know, we're just going to have to deal with that, you know. Or uh, some prosecutors would like delay prosecutions because um, you know they they think you know. Uh, a delay tactic may be in their best interest, but um, Cass was of the school of thought that it's not going to get any better. Um, we don't want to delay prosecution because we could end up losing witnesses. You know, they could they could die or get lost or get in trouble, and so uh, there's no time like the present to move forward. He just uh, he is a, a law enforcement officer's dream come true as a mm-hmm. prosecutor, and just a, a great guy, great human being, and uh, a personal hero of mine. Wow, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, I'm glad that the stars aligned there and you and you uh, met him. And because honestly, um, no body cases they're they're not for the the timid. You cannot be a, pros- a timid prosecutor. You're going to have to get in there and and just get your hands dirty and and you know do it and have faith in your case. And you know if you've got a good case and clearly he saw that you had one, so um, you know that's great. Tell me why. Um, I think I can guess, but for the listener, why the charge of manslaughter versus murder? Well, without the body, I mean, it's uh, there's when it comes to first and second degree murder, you need premeditation and malice of forethought. And in manslaughter, you just have to prove that someone died as a result of another person's actions. Uh, and it also it can involve culpable negligence. So it's a lot easier case to prove. And it's an, another philosophy that Cass had. He, was, he wasn't into overcharging a defendant. He was into charging someone with the highest probability of conviction. He also had another philosophy, which was another, just a dream come true for me, because um, a lot of times when we go to prosecute cases, um, the prosecutor will say, well, you know, that I don't know if we can convince a jury, you know, beyond any reasonable doubt, it's going to be tough to do, and, and Cass's philosophy was, um, let's let a jury decide, let's not let, you know, a prosecutor decide, let's, let's, uh, let's, give the victims the benefit of the doubt. Let's present all the facts to a jury and then let the jury decide. And that, uh, that was uh, a welcome breath of fresh air for me. Absolutely. And as you were, you were at the trial, I assume, did you go all the time? And as you were there, what were your impressions while you were watching? Were you nervous? I mean, did you think uh, you had a good chance? I was excited to be there, but uh, I, as a witness at the trial, I wasn't allowed to uh, attend uh, in courtroom stuff. You know, they usually invoke the rules if you're a witness that you have to sit outside the courtroom and you're only allowed in the courtroom for when you testify. And and that's a good rule because Mm -hmm. you don't want to be swayed by what you hear another witness say uh, is the bottom line. So I got to hear the uh, closing arguments um, only uh, during the trial, but I was there in court for the trial, helping with the witnesses uh, all that time, and uh, it was a very interesting experience. 
I heard in that book, Murders Without Bodies, which I'm going to recommend and put a link in um, my show notes, but the, the author described a, a pretty dramatic moment at the end of the closing statements. What do you, what do you remember about that? Well, um, I've got to tell you that, you know, this was a difficult case, and uh, I guess there was uh, a, a few problems uh, in the trial from uh, a witness testimony standpoint, you know, and, and the defense attorney did a good job, you know, defending his client, and uh, it was just weren't sure which way it was going to go was the bottom line and the only part I got to really hear was the closing argument so I got to hear uh, Cass present um, the prosecution and the defense attorney got up and he, he was very articulate and did a good job on behalf of the uh, defendant and then in a, in a murder trial in a prosecution the uh, prosecutor gets the last word he gets the rebuttal and uh, I think Cass had told me he was going to he had about you know 20 or 30 minute rebuttal but um about 10 minutes into his uh, rebuttal which would be the last thing that the jury would hear prior to the judge giving um the, the jury uh, their direction Cass said you know just something came over him that his instinct kicked in from being a prosecutor for 35 or 40 years and he just stopped he um, he he just knew that he wasn't going to go through the presentation that he had prepared that um, something told him um, just his instincts had kicked in and he just stopped and the whole courtroom was watching him and he just turned around and he pointed at the client and he said in just a very unusual voice because his voice cracked at the top of it you know and uh, it was very emotional and he said he beat her and he just pointed at the defender at, at the defendant I'm sorry I'm getting excited to mm-hmm. tell the story and uh, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, it was just like uh, all the hair stood up in the back of my head. And I think that's exactly what the jury needed to hear at that time. I just remember Cass saying not much after that. Um, he held, he pointed at the defendant. He held his finger pointing at him for a long time. And then he said something along the lines that uh, I think at this point, you know, that the jury's heard enough and they're prepared to do their duty and thank you for your time. And then that was the end of the trial. And then we all sat and waited for, you know, the hours for the jury to deliberate. And then they came back with the guilty. Yeah, that's amazing. That must have been a great feeling. I... When I was going through the documents, what I found interesting is when you went to talk to um, Andrelo in jail, when um, you first talked to him, he was in jail for that five-year sentence from 2012 for Camry's case, right? He was in there for the burglary in Suwannee County. Yeah, and then, burglary. So, yeah. And so he's thinking this whole time, and as I listened to those aud- that audio, I mean, he's in jail, he's in there taking classes and doing this and making plans and all that. He's thinking he's getting out. And so you show up and you say you're active. Did, was he aware that you were working on um, Heather's case or was it a shock to him? Was that like the first he heard about it? Uh, it appeared to me to be a shock that he uh, it, that he thought he had got away with it. Um, and when we actually went there with a warrant for his arrest, um, I went there with Jennifer Wolf for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And he's a big guy. I mean, he's like six four six five you know at least 200 pounds and he he has to you know duck when he comes in the 
the room where we interviewed him, mm-hmm. and I remember he, he sat in the chair, and, and uh, Special Agent Wolf is reading the arrest warrant, you know, the, for manslaughter, and he's just, you know, falling lower and lower and lower in the chair mm-hmm. while she's reading on that. He's not going to get away with it. And he just looked up when uh, Jen was done reading it and said, how? Mm-hmm. And it was just so obvious. He just didn't think there was any way that he could be charged with a murder if we had not found the body. And since he was the killer, he knew where the body was. He was not concerned or worried that the body would ever be found, but he was incredulous that we were able to charge him. And the only, the only question he asked, the only thing he said was, how? How mm. were we able to charge him? Yeah, I found that fascinating, that that whole thing. And, and through all those calls, he just was talking like, not like nothing like he really thought he was going to get out and i just can't picture knowing you've killed someone and disposed of their body he's very he is completely unself-aware is one of the things and he's got an issue with control that's another thing that really shined out to me on those calls but just the fact that he was so not self-aware to you know think that that could have been coming is it was amazing to me another thing that i saw and i want i was curious about is when you had gone to um when you said you were there at the request of the prosecutor who was prepared to indict him for crimes against heather you also mentioned crimes against his ex-wife um but i don't was there anything that ever happened with her case as far as um prosecution i didn't see that anything happened there initially um you know cass uh being the great prosecutor that he is um he looked at all the information he looked at uh, what we had on the camry mitchell case he looked he looked at what we had for filing charges on behalf of his ex-wife um which there was um a uh statute of limitations issue with most of those crimes uh, um, of domestic violence. Um, He cast thought that the strongest case we had was Heather McCrossan, so he decided um, to move forward with Heather's case first. Um, That way, if if it didn't work out from a prosecution standpoint, he would always have the option of filing other charges down the line. Um, But it would be kind of a duplication of effort um, now to do anything with any of those additional charges because Witcher got 30 years in prison. Right, and I wanted to ask, so it was uh, 15 for manslaughter and then 15 for that habitual offender status, which I'm learning a lot about as I go through too. What's, what is the likelihood of him ever getting out? It seems like the judge said something about that I read in one of the articles that it's a possibility he could see the light of day again. What What are... What are we looking at here as far as realistically? Well, the sentences are concurrent. Um, So he's got a 30-year sentence, but he uh, is only in his 40s. Um, So, and I don't know, I'm not really up to speed on Department of Corrections and um, gain time, I think they used to call it. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding um, that a defendant must serve now um, 85% of their sentence. Um, that's if, you know, he has great conduct and does all the things he's supposed to do um, while he's in prison. So whatever 85% of 30 years would be, mm-hmm. um, that's the time he's going to have to serve. Well, that's good. I feel a little bit better <laughs> anyway, you know. I mean, I just, you're, it, he is a scary person. He's a, Prison was made for people like Andrea Witcher. That's a fact. Whatever you feel about, you know, how we incarcerate people these days and what whatever. Prison was made for violent offenders like 
Andrelo Witcher because he, people are not safe with him out. That's just a fact at this point. Um, so it makes me happy to hear that. Now, do you think there are other people that know that may have possibly helped him with body disposal? I, I, I don't know that I have an opinion on this. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of people in this case, and uh, although Andrello does have some very loyal family members, mm -hmm. uh, I would think he probably worked alone. Um, and if you can call, you know, what he does with our victims work, mm -hmm. um, I don't know that he would be comfortable um, knowing that there was another uh, living witness that uh, knows what happened uh, with the remains of the vic victim or victims. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Your perspective is not what I expected it to be, which is good because I don't, that's what's the difference between an actual cop and someone who's just telling a story on a podcast because I don't, you know, I just always think, oh, there's got to be a, a possibility, but this is Florida and, you know, when you, ha there's plenty of places to do thing, you know, water for one, um, where you're not going to find, you know, a body. So that's troubling. Um, well, they also say that, um, if you dispose of uh, uh, human remains with a group of pigs, that they there's no when they get rid of their waste, um, mm -hmm. there's no human remains left after if if that's what happens. Yes, and there oh was goodness. that has come up in a couple of my. You'd be surprised how many times you hear that as someone who goes over these cases regularly. Well, you probably hear it on your end too. I yep, get that. I, I have. I've heard it on this case. You know. I, I had emailed you uh, about another case. This is how this whole ball got rolling. And I wanted to get some documents and kind of you just gently sure. gently told me no <laughs> in your nice Kevin Allen way. Um, but then you, you kind of sort of sent me this documentation about Andrelo's case. And I wondered, um, do you not ever put this stuff away? You had already gotten a successful conviction on Heather's case. So did these... Old cases, they still poke at you when, as, after? Oh, sure. Yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah they, well, uh, I think in order to be a good detective, you have to be passionate about what you do, that it's just not a nine-to-five job. So I I, I do tend to uh, get very involved um, with the investigations and uh, with the witnesses and the survivors, and they all just kind of feel like family to me, you know, and, and fairly short order. So I think whenever you're subjected to that level of trauma, either as a witness or as an investigator, I mean, I, I can't really speak from it from a victim standpoint, but uh, when you, uh, you, have, you have kind of firsthand knowledge of um, how horrible things, uh, how people can do horrible things to others, I think it definitely affects you. And I, I don't know if it, ever completely goes away i don't think you can kind of forget you know all of this stuff so um uh yeah i, I don't know they keep on coming back at the usual times i guess mm. that would be the best explanation of it mm -hmm. yeah i i was curious about that um because i can't imagine you know that you're able to uh, law enforcement officers when you're doing what you do is look at these very serious violent cases and and how you're able to sort of compartmentalize or put it you know how you're able to just get through your normal life when you go home at the end of the day you know how how that even works I don't know because I know how I'm affected by just researching these cases 
I'm not, I couldn't be, I couldn't be a law enforcement officer. So I always wonder how you guys are able to sort of, you know, shimmy things around in your own subconscious and and able to do it and not just become, you know, hate the world around you. (laughs) That that to me. I learned, uh, what always worked for me, because I always had about a half hour commute in Fort Lauderdale where I spent most of my career, um, I would spend like the half hour driving to work, kind of getting in cop mode. And then I would spend the half hour driving home, getting out of cop mode. And that, that kind of has worked uh, the same here for me. You know, it's just uh, when I'm driving home, I try not to think about or talk about work. And um, and I try to make that transition so, you know, you can turn the police part of it on and off. That's good. I'm glad. What are you listening to music? How are you turning off the cop mode? What, you're just not thinking about it. You just commit to getting in that car and that you know whatever you're going to yeah, focus just, on something uh, else. I said this is not the time for it. That's the bottom line. So, but it is unusual at times. You know, like things will just you know that's the left part of the brain working. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I'll you know be driving to Jacksonville to spend a weekend with my fiance and I'll think about you know, some case that I read three years ago and, and the left part of the brain will say, hey, Kevin, you never checked the blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll literally, I'll, I'll text myself a message at work and said, you know, check that evidence, you know, see? <laughs> but so you just, you never know when the, the great tip will occur to you. Yeah, I, that's weird how the brain works. I have literally woken up out of a sound sleep in the middle of the night and thought something like that. Wait, what about this? You know, just it's just because it gets into your brain and then you can't, you know, when you're researching something that, you know, focusing on the minutia, that's what happens. All right, let's see. I just got a couple things because I know you're eager to get back to your cold case, your new one that you're working on. Um, Jenny, I, I definitely hear where you're coming from, too, because I think sometimes uh, with what you just said, sometimes you get so close to it mm-hmm. that you don't really see the obvious part. And I think that's uh, the left. So you and I are very similar like mm-hmm. that. The left part of our brains are always working on some aspect of it, even though we're not really cognizant of it so we, we don't yeah. have that in common yeah you're carrying it around with you but you're not trying to think about it but there's something you know i don't it is fascinating how the brain works it just sort of yep. has a, this way of just sort of you know po- oh wait a minute you know just out of the blue that happens you know frequently with me because i'm i'm yep. sort of a, a, someone who i multitasker so i'm sure that has a lot to do with also you know when you're doing a million things at once but what i can't do is there's a lot of podcasters that will have three or four cases that they're researching i can't do that i can only be one and i'm in it and that's it and then i'm when i'm done i'm done unless things come up or whatever but you know which does happen a lot i'm sure for you but um i can't i have to focus on one thing and so it it, it was kind of interesting on this case where there's three different ones i was really i had to be very organized because i wanted to make sure i wasn't crossing over you know victims and and you know getting confused but i want to know um as far as what what do you think about where these women are and related to Andrelo? What he, what you know, what did he do with these women? Where, what are your thoughts on where they may be related to what you know about his personality? Well, one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that he knows we're never going to find them. I mean, oh. he, uh, that that how question. I mean, he definitely uh, knew that he had disposed of them properly and that they will never be discovered. Um, I would think that it would be in an area that he was quite familiar with 
and that he had probably, he knows at least in his mind that uh, no one is ever going to recover any of his victims' remains. Well, that's, I'm not going to sleep well tonight because of that. That That's horrifying to even think of. But you're, it makes sense now that you say that, when you articulate it that way, it does make sense. I thank you really so much for doing this. I mean, you're a great interview and I I appreciate it. And I know that my listeners are going to appreciate it. And um, I'm glad that you're digging into a new case because whoever the victim is, is lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Very nice of you to say. (laughs) If you have any information as to the whereabouts of Heather McCrossin, you can contact Kevin Allen with the Alachua County Sheriff's Office at 352 384-3323. He's still looking for Tiffany Sessions, and he will continue to look for Heather McCrossin should any new leads come across his desk. Those of you who are longtime listeners, you'll recognize the voices of my birds. You can hardly help but hearing them, can you? First it was chickens, and now it's birds. Actually, it's bird, singular, one of them died. I've also got a heavy-breathing dog sitting right next to me. She's very old, and I didn't have the heart to kick her out of the room while we were doing the interview because she might not be around much longer, so we'll all just have to make do. In the next episode, you'll hear what it was like to be married to Andrea Witcher. Stay tuned. <laughs>